welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 55, Anafrolumab in Active Systemic Lupus Erythematosus, alternatively known as TULIP1 and TULIP2. This is an absolutely fascinating question, and I'm really excited to talk about these trials, so let's get right into it. My plan is to start by talking about TULIP1, so here goes. For background, type 1 interferons are cytokines that are implicated in SLE pathogenesis, and afromab is a fully human IgG kappa monoclonal antibody to type 1 interferon receptor subunit 1 that we think might work for lupus. I think that's probably about all you need to know, so let's talk about the trials. So TULIP1 was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, parallel group phase 3 trial at 123 sites in 18 countries. This was a big undertaking. To get into the trial, you had to have lupus, with a diagnosis at least 24 weeks before enrollment. Now, inclusion criteria were complicated. It essentially boils down to non-neurologic, non-renal active lupus for both trials, but let me walk you through this, starting with TULIP1. So in TULIP1, you had to have a SLEED-I2K, which is one of our popular lupus activity measures, of at least six, but at least four of that could not come from laboratory results. You also had to have a BILAG, which is the British Isles Lupus Assessment Group 2004, with organ domain scores of at least one A item and two B items. You also had to have a physician's global assessment of at least one, and then you had to be seropositive for ANA and then a number of subserologies. In addition, you also had to be on treatment with something, this could be a steroid equivalent or some other non-steroid immunosuppression drug. Patients were randomized into placebo, anaphrolimab 150 milligrams or anaphrolimab 300 milligrams. I'm going to ditch 150 because it really doesn't wind up mattering. Patients who entered the trial on 10 milligrams of prednisone equivalent per day were tapered between weeks eight and 40, which I thought was interesting and honestly a helpful addition to this trial because it's what I would be adding a steroid sparing agent for. Now the primary efficacy outcome in TULIP1 was SRI4. What is SRI4? This is a composite of a bunch of composite metrics. To have a SRI4 response, you had to have at least a four point reduction in the lead I2K, less than one new BILAG 2004A or less than two new BILAG 2004B organ domains, a less than 0.3 point increase on a, on a physician global assessment from baseline, and no use of restricted medicines, and no discontinuation of the investigational product. So in summary, you had to improve on the sleet I2K. You couldn't get worse in the BILAG. You couldn't get worse in the physician global assessment. You couldn't start taking restricted medicine, and you had to stay on the investigational product. This isn't unreasonable, but to say that it's straightforward or isn't complicated would be completely ludicrous. The statistical analysis was more or less appropriate. I'll talk about that more in TULIP2, so let's talk about the results. The trial went from 2015 to 2017. 460 patients were assigned, 180 in each group. This is a very large lupus trial. The proportion of patients who achieved an SRI4 response at week 52 were similar for anaphrolimab and placebo. 36% versus 40%, that's difference is not statistically significant, and if you look at the beautiful Kaplan-Meier curves, you will see that they are essentially superimposable. This was a negative trial. Now, in clinical trials, we are testing a hypothesis, and we are trying to test one hypothesis, and one way to ensure that we're not testing dozens and dozens and dozens of hypotheses is to tell the people who are running the trial, 
you need to pick one outcome. And if that outcome is not significant, then you're not allowed to test the rest of them to claim that they are. That's how they ran this trial. That's how the New England Journal is essentially requiring companies to run trials. And that's pretty much what you're going to be seeing going forward. Because of that, we don't know if any of the other differences were technically statistically significant, but let me walk you through them. With regard to the prednisone taper, patients in the anafrolumab group were more likely to reduce their target to below 7.5 at week 52. The difference was around 10%. Patients were much more likely to have a difference in class activity scores, which is a skin score in lupus, 42% nanofromab versus 25% in placebo. And there was a numerical advantage with the nanofromab group versus placebo with regard to the Bickler response. The Bickler response being another complicated lupus outcome measure. I think that is a good time to bounce forward and talk about TULIP2, which was published in the New England Journal also at the end of 2019. So the TULIP-2 trial was almost identical to the TULIP-1 trial. It was a phase 3 randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, parallel group trial, 119 sites in 16 countries. This is another enormous lupus trial. Patients had to have moderate to actively severe SLE with similar inclusion criteria. They essentially had to have severe disease activity in one or more organs or moderate activity in two or more organs measured by the BILAG. At screening... Patients were seropositive for ANAs and some subserologies, and like TULIP-1, patients with active severe lupus nephritis or neuropsychiatric lupus were excluded. There was no 150 milligram group of anafromab in this trial. It was placebo against 300. They stratified by a number of different things that I'll probably talk about later, but ultimately, I don't think it matters very much. And patients who were on prednisone at 10 milligrams a day or more were attempted to taper between 8 and 40, just like TULIP-1. Now, the primary efficacy endpoint of TULIP-2 was also the SRI4 response. But when the company realized that the TULIP-1 trial was a big flop, but that the BICLA had looked okay, they said, what if we change the primary endpoint in TULIP-2? Now, this is a shenanigan, and I don't love it, but I actually don't object to it too much either. The reason is that, per the company, and they had discussed this extensively in the supplemental documentation, they had no idea what the analysis of TULIP-2 looked like when they did this. Philosophically, the reason that we choose a primary endpoint is to avoid us cheating and testing tons and tons and tons of different hypotheses until we find one that works. If they had no idea what the data looked like and they changed the outcome, that really doesn't hurt anything. Now, some people will say that that's silly and we can't trust the pharmaceutical companies. I'll give you two responses to that. First, I think the authors of this paper were good people, and I don't think that they would intentionally lie about this. And second, they actually wound up hitting on the SRI4, so none of this was necessary. I think that if they'd actually seen this data, I don't think that they would have changed the outcome measure. So I'm kind of reassured on that point. That being said, they did change the outcome measure. So it went from SRI4 to BICLA. So what is a BICLA response? To get a BICLA response, you had to have a reduction of all severe BILAG 2004A or moderately severe BILAG 2004B disease activities. You had to have no worsening in other organ systems. You had to have no worsening in disease activity as defined by the SLEED I2K score or by the Physician Global Assessment score. You couldn't stop the trial intervention and you couldn't use restricted medications. So this isn't too much different than the SRI4, the main thing being that this emphasizes the BILAG over the SLEED I2K. What will that do for us? Well, like I said before, the SLEED I2K is a bunch of yes-no questions. The BILAG is a little bit more nuanced. There are over 100 different metrics, and you have to grade each of them from not done, not present, improving, same, worse, new, etc. 
Now, they also did a number of secondary endpoints, including looking at interferon signature, reduction in glucocorticoid dose, the classy score again, swollen tender joint counts, etc. Analysis, just like tool one was modified intention to treat. The stats were all more or less appropriate, so let's talk about the results. The study ran from 2015 through 2018. There were about 180 patients in each group. 85% in the anafromab group and 71.4% in the placebo group completed the study. I don't like to see different rates there, but it's encouraging that the anafromab group made it longer. That makes me feel like if people were quitting because the drug was super toxic, it wouldn't necessarily favor the anafromab group. If anything, it points towards maybe anafromab working somewhat. This contrasts with the census trial that I talked about a couple episodes ago, where you saw more dropout in the treatment group. Now, what did the patients who got into this trial look like? This is broadly similar to the TULIP-1, so I'll just summarize here. Patients were a little over 40 years old. They're overwhelmingly 94% female. There was actually a pretty good racial distribution in TULIP-2, which I really like to see. African-American patients made up 14%, Asian 17%, and 30% of the patients identified as Hispanic or Latino. That's fantastic. A lot of trials are not very heterogeneous and not as generalizable. Good job, TULIP-2. This lead I2K score was 11.5. That's moderately active SLE. Swollen joints were 7.4. And 83% of patients were on glucocorticoids. So this is the group of patients that you're reaching for a new drug. 73% were on an antimalarial, and half were on another immunosuppression agent. I do think this was the right group of patients to be running this trial. Getting to the primary endpoint, the BIC response at week 52 was 47.8% in the anafromab group versus 31.5% in placebo. That is a number needed to treat of six, and that was statistically significantly different. Unlike TULIP-1, they were therefore allowed to keep running statistical tests, and across the board, they saw some benefit. With regard to prednisone tapering, patients were more likely to get below 7.5 milligrams if they took anafrolimab, 51.5 versus 30.2%. That's a number needed to treat of five. Patients were more likely to have improvements in their classy skin scores, 49% versus 25%. That's a number needed to treat of four. All of these results were statistically significant. Now, where we did not see a benefit was with swollen joints. With regard to a reduction of 50% or more in both swollen and tender joint counts, it was 42.2 versus 37.5%. That's about a 5% difference. That was not statistically significant. So whatever anafrolimab does, it doesn't seem like it benefits joints a whole lot. As far as adverse outcomes were concerned, 88% who got anafrolimab and 84% who received placebo had adverse events. There's a lot of small, not statistically analyzed differences between the two groups. I will point to the fact that there were more respiratory infections in the anafrolimab group, 22 versus 10%, so it's 12% increase. That's a relatively large number. Infusion-related reactions were a little more common, and there was more zoster, 13 patients versus 2 patients, 7.2 versus 1.1. So like tofacitinib and the JAK inhibitors, increased risk of zoster is something you need to consider for this drug. Now that was a lot of information, so let me step back. In TULIP-1, we had what was essentially a failed trial. Anafrolimab did not result in an improvement in SRI4. We couldn't really analyze the other outcome measures. The differences between them were relatively small, but it looked like it may have helped in the skin. In TULIP-2, we used a different outcome measure, the BICLA, and that was statistically significantly better in the anafrolimab group. Subsequent subset analyses looking at classy and steroid tapering were better. Looked like joint counts were not significantly better. So how do we reconcile these? There have been a number of editorials already written on this. I think they're pretty good, and I'll summarize a couple thoughts. 
The first was that the SRI4 is more SLEDI dependent and the BICLA is more BILAG dependent. These things weight symptoms differently. The BICLA may be more stringent, but also a little more sensitive to change. The, the BICLA also may be able to capture a partial response, whereas the SLEDI is really relying more on arthritis, complete response, and serologic stuff. I guess that makes sense. And for a drug that doesn't help arthritis a ton and brings about a partial response in skin and other symptoms, maybe that's why the BICLA hit and SRI4 didn't. Now, the caveat is that they hit the SRI4 in the TULIP 2. If you look at the supplemental materials, there was an 18% difference. That's the number needed to treat of six. It would be easy to reconcile that if these were different trials and a different group of people, but the truth is that they were essentially the same trial on essentially the same patients. I don't think the differences were big enough to explain a 20% absolute difference in effect on the same outcome. Very confusing results, and I don't honestly have a great answer for it. If you read the editorials, I don't think they do either necessarily. Now, a lot has been made about the, this pathobiology question and the fact that they had high and low interferon groups. None of it really matters to me. It seemed like it worked in both groups. Whether or not that's a hit against the therapy seems irrelevant. I'm a very clinically focused person, and I think we get way too hung up on pathophysiology. It looked like this worked in one trial. It looked like it didn't in the other, and we have to deal with that. Now, astute listeners may also note that one of my favorite things to talk about has not been mentioned yet, and that is patient-reported outcomes. Why do I like patient-reported outcome measures so much? Well, in medicine, if you can stop someone from dying, that is a good thing. Most therapies in rheumatology do not accomplish this goal. Anaphrolimab has no clear mortality benefit. If anything, it causes more infections than not getting anaphrolimab. So why would we give patients a medicine that causes infections? Well, perhaps it's going to improve their quality of life. What can we do to find out about quality of life? Well, we can ask the patients, did you feel better? Both of these trials evaluated multiple patient report outcome measures, including the SF36, the facet fatigue, and the patient global assessment. None of these were reported in either primary manuscript. It is customary to publish a lot of PROs all at once later on, but let me tell you, trials that hit on the PRO very frequently will at least throw us a bone. Give us the SF36. Let us know that this did make people feel better overall. If we are going to be debating the nuances of whether or not one incredibly complicated esoteric outcome measure worked better than another incredibly complicated esoteric outcome measure, I think it would be helpful to know if if you just asked the patient, they said, hey, I feel great. Or they said, you know, I actually feel worse now that I'm on anaphrolimab. I think this was a relatively glaring omission. I think that they should have been published. And I wrote a letter to the New England Journal to this effect. We'll see if they publish it. Now, two more broad take-home points. The first is a reminder that phase two results don't always translate. We expected this to work because the phase two trials looked great. Now, I guess we'll have to add to that that phase three trials don't always translate because the TULIP-1 and TULIP-2 trials, which were very, very similar, essentially came to quite different conclusions. If we only had TULIP-2, I don't think we'd be confused at all. If we only had TULIP-1, I don't think we'd be talking about FDA approval for this medicine. I also want to note that there's been a lot of talk here about how to fix outcome measures in lupus. One of the editorials said, I'm going to quote for a minute here, quote, given the need to bring drugs to patients with SLE, the lupus community has urged regulators to consider trial designs that allow greater flexibility in defining success. For example, perhaps a benefit with respect to just one of the two endpoints, the SRI4 or the BICLA, need to be observed to declare a drug effective in this complex disease. End quote. Now, what that essentially boils down to is, 
lupus is complicated, let's lower the bar. I don't think we need to do that because we know the bar. The bar is, does this improve someone's quality of life? We don't need an SRI4 and a Bicla or an SRI4 Bicla combination, Bicla SRI4, whatever we're going to call that. We just need to ask patients, did you feel better? Were you able to go to work? Were you able to get out of bed in the morning? Do you feel like you had a higher quality of life being on anifrolumab? We did ask patients that question, but for whatever reason, the company decided not to tell us the answer. I sure hope that it winds up being positive, but the fact that they didn't tell us makes me a little bit concerned that it wasn't. So take-home points. Anifrolumab clearly does something. It looks like it improves your skin. It looks like it spares steroid. It does not seem to have a big effect on joints. Now, anifrolumab also causes some issues. The first one is infection, and once we hear how much this drug costs, bankruptcy will probably be another. Certainly not for the patients, if it's FDA approved, but for our health system, I think the cost issue will be a real question. And last but not least, will I use this drug? Now, I do think it will be approved by the FDA. I think belimumab was approved on similar, if maybe even weaker data, so I think that it'll probably fly there. And I suspect that it will have value in patients for whom we really cannot get off prednisone, and that is related to skin disease. I don't think I'll be using this for patients who have predominantly joint symptoms, and until we get more information about what this did to patients' quality of life, I don't think I'll be using this broadly. So this may have a niche, and it's something that I'll definitely reach for in certain cases if it winds up getting approved. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and have a great week.